Welcome to the Agent of Wealth podcast with Mark Boudis from Boudis Financial. In this podcast, Mark helps guide you towards financial freedom, ensure you never run out of money, and create a balance in life that prioritizes what is most important to you. Join us for this journey as Mark draws from years of expertise and guest experts to solve the multiple wealth building challenges involved in your financial life. Welcome back to the Agent of Wealth. This is your host, Mark Bowdis. Today, I'm joined by my colleague, Kayla Waller, who's a financial planner at Bowdis Financial, to talk about how to conduct a checkup on your investment portfolio. Kayla, welcome to the show. Hey, Mark. So before we get into what an investment review or checkup looks like, um, I want to first talk about why you should review your investments. And your portfolio or your investment portfolio, it's important because it's one of the main drivers that will help you or allow you to hit your financial goals. And everyone treats their portfolio differently. Some people are making changes to it daily. Uh, some people take the set it and forget it approach where they pick their investments and they never look or touch them again. And usually being somewhere in the middle makes sense. And that's usually the approach that we take when managing portfolios. Uh, so today we'll talk about some of the things to consider when you do a review or a checkup on the portfolio. And we're doing this in, in conjunction with a free checklist that we make available on how to uh, execute an investment checkup. The actual checkup contains 25 items to consider when you review your investments. And thinking about it reminds me, this week I took my card to the mechanic and one of the services they did was a 27-point inspection that's used to gauge the health of your car. So our 25-point checkup is to gauge the health of your, uh, your portfolio. So let's get into it. When it comes to investments, one of the first things you want to get a handle on is your risk profile. And there are many ways to do this, but what happens is a lot of people, they just do it via gut feel, um, where, you know, they feel, okay, I'm going to pick this, I'm going to pick that, and we'll see how it goes, and we'll see if I don't like, you know, some of the downside or upside that, that happens to it. Uh, we'd like to take a more quantitative approach to risk management. So to start, Kayla, can you talk a little bit about how we assess someone's risk? Yeah. Like you were saying, there's like the how you feel about it. There's a couple different parts to risk. There's how you feel about risk in that, but there's also what's currently in your portfolio. And then there's the other part, which is how much risk you need to take to meet your goals and objectives in the future. So we use software that helps us answer these questions and see how people feel so we can put a plan into place um, in the beginning and talk about you know what could happen and what you can expect these portfolios to do because a lot of times you don't like you were saying you just pick these five random choices but you don't really know how to measure that performance yeah i think measuring the risk is is important we can measure the risk that is in a portfolio so the the way the software works is it looks at the different investments in there and it'll quantitatively put a number uh, associated with risk on that um, and what we want to do is we want to match that up. Is is that the right amount of risk, like you mentioned, that someone should have to be able to hit their goals? And I always use the analogy, like everyone would love to take no risk, put their money under the mattress and have their portfolio generate enough income or enough growth that they can meet all their financial goals. Reality is that most people have to take some risk to get that growth or get that income but you want to take the appropriate risk. You don't want to take too much, um, but you need to take enough. And that's that second measurement that you or third measurement that you were talking about is how much risk does someone need to take it 
But you know, the, the other one is how much risk are you com- is someone comfortable with? Because if they take too much risk there and they and there's a market drop in their portfolio drops, you know, they, a lot of times people tend to make irrational decisions at that point. Well, they'll start calling us and saying, "Let's sell everything. Let's wait on the sideline until things look better." And it doesn't usually work that way because what happens is by the time things look better, or by the time you're starting to hear, you know, better news and about the markets or the economy, uh, your portfolio has already gotten back to, you know, recovered and gotten back to the losses. And then you're still sitting on the, on the sideline. So we try and avoid that by, you know, correlating those three risks, uh, together. And that's, you know, we wanted to start with that one because it is, it's a very important one. Um, you know, to make sure you have the right risk in your portfolio for what you're, you're looking or need to do. Let's go to the second one of the five that we picked to talk about today. And that's, do you have any significant positions that represent a large portion of your portfolio? And I know we come across this a lot. So talk a little bit about why someone would want to analyze that, look at that, and maybe what could they do to address it? Yeah, sometimes the employers just offer stock as a benefit, and that's great. But sometimes you could just be overexposed to that particular company. So your your entire financial health is just tied to them. But maybe by diversifying away from that, you're less concentrated. You're minimizing some of the risk that you can control while still having the potential for gains. But yeah, it's something that happened a lot during the pandemic with a lot of those companies that were popular like Zoom and Peloton, where the price was it was doing really good and then it's not so much anymore. But a lot of people that did have employer stock got crushed because of that. Yeah. And I, I think even more recent than the pandemic, we saw this with some of the bank failures. Um, there was uh, SVB and Signature where you know people had positions in them and, and, and large positions in their company stock. And you know it, they're thinking, okay, you know, my bank is fine. It's a bank. And actually, both of those two banks recently passed an audit um, that they had. So it kind of came somewhat out of the blue, but it's the same thing. You know, you, you have a lot tied into it and, and companies sometimes make it appealing by they'll offer a, either that you're granted, um, whether it's restricted stock or options. Um, but also they have a lot of, of companies have these employee stock purchase plans where they'll offer a discount. The discount, you know, could be 10%, 15%. It's hard to pass up. But then what happens is, like you mentioned, you're, you build up this large position in your company. And, you know, there are two things that go into play. One, a lot of times you have an emotional kind of affinity for the company because you work there and you feel good about the company and you like the company and you don't want to, you know, you, you think, okay, if I'm, if I sell some of the stock, I'm betting against my, or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm betting against my, my company. And that's not true. You know, you have to look at it from the stock as compensation, just like cash income is. And executives and, and employees, they're selling stock at all different times and it's for all different reasons. It's not wrong to, to sell stock. And, you know, you, like you mentioned, you want to look at it from the overall portfolio perspective of what's the right amount of company stock so that if something does happen to this company and there, and there are countless examples in addition to what happened in the pandemic or the bank failures throughout time where companies that look like they were fine, went bankrupt and people lost a lot of money. So what we recommend is really having kind of a strategy on, you know, if it hits a certain percentage of your portfolio, does it make sense to divest or sell some of it? No one's saying that you need to to get rid of all your company stock or sell all of it. Or does it make sense to do it periodically? Or if it hits certain price thresholds, 
and, you know, really having a kind of a structured approach to it can help. I think another recent example that we saw was someone who wanted to use their company stock to set aside for their child's college. The problem was that the stock had a really large capital gain since they've had it for a while. The stock has done well. One of the things we had talked about with them is how using tax loss harvesting and something called direct indexing can help minimize the tax hit from it. So I'm just bringing that up as an example of, you know, you may not be locked. You know, you, some people think, oh, I'm locked in because if I sell this stock, I'm going to get a really big tax hit. And, you know, there's different strategies or different available options that come up where maybe that's not necessarily the, the truth. But again, it's another important thing to, to look at in your portfolio. Next one is, do you need to open a new account specifically tied to an investment objective or consolidate existing accounts? And can you talk a little about why this is important? I think in the beginning with with an, a lot of new clients, part of the reason they come to us is because they have a bunch of different accounts. Maybe they've accumulated like five or six different 401ks and they have a few different IRAs open and they just want to consolidate everything. So part of what we do in the beginning is look at that and see whether or not it makes sense to move those old 401ks into an account. And if it does bring everything together, so then instead of looking at eight different things, you're just looking at one. But for the first part of the question, do you need to open a, an account tied to an objective? If there's like a specific goal, like retirement or education, it helps to open an account intended for that, for education. A 529 is the most popular or you contribute the money today and then it grows tax-free. And as long as the money's used for qualified education expenses, it comes out tax-free as well. And in New Jersey, you can deduct up to $10,000 if your household is making less than 200,000. So there are certain advantages with, with contributing to 529s if you know it's gonna be used for actually for education. And then for retirement, there's a bunch of different employer-sponsored plans like 401ks and 403bs. Those also offer tax advantages. If you know you're going to use it for a specific goal, like retirement or education, it could be in your benefit to open an account tied to it. Yeah, and you're, you're mentioning like opening up an account specifically tied to an investment objective. And the two that you mentioned, retirement and, and college and 529s, there's tax benefits tied to those. So that's one of the things you want to consider is, is there a tax-efficient way of saving that maybe um maybe someone's overlooking or not thinking about but there's also the behavioral psychology aspect of it too where if you have a separate account and you're putting money into it and that's whether it's a tax advantage account or not it kind of you can kind of like uh, structure it or, or think about it in okay it, it helps you not read the account you know because it's very easily sometimes if you kind of just saving money in this general area where all you're paying bills out of and expenses come out of it gets very easy to just you know oh i need this much money to do this or i want to do this to just take that money and and do something with it but if you have it in a separate account where you can actually measure and say all right i am 53% towards my goal of saving enough to put my kids through college or, you know, saving for this addition or this second home or whatever it is, kind of goes back to like the envelope system that people used years ago on like budgeting or, you know, saving money. It's a similar concept. Have a separate account tied to different goals. And, you know, you can do it. It's People would think, oh, I don't want to have, you know, all these different accounts there, but there's ways to manage it. And, you know, even if you do have a, a separate account per goal, it helps with 
when money does come in, how you can kind of divvy it up into the different buckets or the different goals. Although, you know, you don't have to, you can keep it in one, one specific account, but, um, it's just another way that it can help, you know, make tracking towards that goal a little bit easier. And then the second thing you mentioned about consolidating existing accounts, uh, what we've seen, like, you know, if people have multiple 401ks or multiple accounts, it's really hard to have a kind of cohesive investment strategy based off those. You kind of, there's a lot of overlap and, you know, you don't need, it's hard to even tell like what, you know, how much going back to that, how much risk or what my risk profile is if there's multiple accounts with multiple different investments in there. And the one, you know, one common thing I've seen is what people do in their retirement accounts is they'll use the target date funds, which is a fund that's supposed to be tied to or close as possible to the year that you're going to retire. You go with that year. So if someone's expected to retire in 2020, 2035, they would have a mutual fund target date fund that's the 2035. But I've seen people spread it out and they'll have some money in a 2025, some in the 2030, some in a 2035. They'll have like a, a large cap US uh, stock fund and it all kind of like just mingles together and kind of makes this mess of a investment strategy. So consolidating existing accounts, that's, that's one way also of kind of helping put a, you know, a cohesive investment strategy together. On to the next one, which is the question of, do you hold assets with a tax loss? Yeah, it's called tax loss harvesting. It's just a strategy that lets you sell losing investments today, and then you can offset your gains, and you can write down $3,000 per year. So it's just a good way that you can manage your investment gains per year. We saw this one really come up a lot last year, where last year overall there was a decline in the market. So people did have losses in their portfolio. And one thing, a loss, it's really a paper loss until you take the action on selling it. So without selling it, there's really no tax consequence. It's when you sell it. And if you purchase something for for more than what it's worth now, that's what's considered an unrealized loss. It becomes a realized loss when you actually sell it and what you can... what uh, you were mentioning with the, the strategies, you can sell it and you can replace it with something else. And what happens now is you're able to take that loss or take that deduction on your tax return up to 3000 a year, but anything more than that gets carried over to you know subsequent years going going forward. What happens is a lot of people don't look at this or don't analyze this as an effective option um, because not only are you able to take that paper loss on it, it can offset. You might have gains from somewhere else. You might have gains from selling real estate, or you might have gains from another investment that you had to sell. So this is particularly important for someone that's maybe in retirement and is drawing income on their portfolio, being able to efficiently sell or harvest tax losses when, when applicable can really help make those withdrawals, you know, as tax efficient as possible. So it's another one that again gets overlooked a lot, but is definitely something that's, that's worthwhile. Um, and then the last one we wanted to cover today is, is there a plan in place during periods of market decline? So another one that's that's appropriate considering what we saw in the markets last year. Yeah. Like, as you were saying, like, it's important to have a place during a market decline because it helps you not react emotionally, which is kind of hard to do when talking about money because it is really emotional. But in the beginning, we we've already had these conversations with a lot of clients, so we've already kind of had a worst scenario conversation. And when it does happen, like, you know, and then you kind of have an idea of like, oh, this is how much it'll bounce back. Another thing too, if you have a plan in place and you have it under control, 
you're not going to want to sell stuff. And that, that potentially saves you from taking those losses because in periods when the market does decline, it feels super overwhelming. And then you may want to sell everything and go to cash. But by the time you do that, like it's already come back. So you've already missed out on that. So it kind of does that. And it just, it's a good way to help prevent stress and uncertainty because we've already had these conversations and we know it's just a cycle and it will come back. Yeah. And I think one of the tools we use to address this is something called Monte Carlo analysis. So what that is, is it looks at someone's portfolio and it runs thousands of simulations on what could happen in the markets with your portfolio. What it'll do is it'll spit out like a report that says, okay, you know, we look at each of these a thousand, let's call it thousand simulations. And maybe in, you know, 900 of them, you're still able to meet your financial goals with your using your portfolio. We know the markets are not going to go up 6%, 7%, 8%, 9%, 10% straight every year. And that there are years when it's up a lot more. There are years when it's down. And using these Monte Carlo simulations can really help show someone that yeah, there's going to be down years. And even if we're going through a down year, you can, you know, you can see that, you know, there's a down year this year and maybe even there's a down year next year. But even with these down years, I'm still, you know, someone's still going to be able to hit their, their financial goals or financial objectives. So that's another tool that we use to kind of, you know, address these market declines, which like you said, they're emotionally tough. Like you said, going back to that plan, it's important to have in place to really see, you know, because there's no avoiding the markets are cyclical it's going to happen. And it's really having that plan in place, which helps, you know, emotionally, but also helps see where someone is. And if they need to make any changes, whether it's the savings or whether it's to their risk profile or, or to something else. And, you know, it just kind of goes back to, you know, having that full transparency or visibility into what's going on in your investments, but also how your investments tie to everything else. Um, all right. So that just about wraps up today's episode. We covered five specific areas or things to consider on a portfolio checkup. But as I mentioned earlier, we'll leave a link in the show notes and the episode webpage where you can get a copy of the full 25-point checklist if someone wants to, to go through it. If someone wants to go through it with us, we'd obviously be happy to talk. Um, thank you, Kayla, for, for being on the show today. Thank you to everyone who tuned in. Don't forget to follow the Agent of Wealth on the platform you listen to and also leave us a review on the show. Thank you for listening to the Agent of Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Boutis Financial. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial planning and investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investments and financial planning.